Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and Chapters 22 and 23 of The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. These two chapters mark the end of the first narrative. Next week, we begin the second narrative. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. And now, Chapter 22. My mistress having left us, I had leisure to think of Sergeant Cuff. I found him sitting in a snug corner of the hall, consulting his memorandum book, and curling up viciously at the corners of the lips. "'Making notes of the case?' I asked. "'No,' said the sergeant, looking to see what my next professional engagement is. "'Oh,' I said. "'You think it's all over, then, here?' "'I think,' answered Sergeant Cup, "'that Lady Verinder is one of the cleverest women in England.' "'I also think a rose much better looking at than a diamond. "'Where's the gardener, Mr. Betteredge?' "'There was no getting a word more out of him "'on the matter of the moonstone. "'He had lost all interest in his own inquiry, "'and he would persist in looking for the gardener. "'An hour afterwards I heard them at high words in the conservatory, "'with the dog rose once more at the bottom of the dispute. "'In the meantime,' It was my business to find out whether Mr. Franklin persisted in his resolution to leave us by the afternoon train. After having been informed of the conference in my lady's room, and of how it had ended, he immediately decided on waiting to hear the news from prison hall. This very natural alteration in his plans, which, with ordinary people, would have led to nothing in particular, proved, in Mr. Franklin's case, to have one objectionable result. It left him unsettled, with a legacy of idle time on his hands, and in so doing, it let out all the foreign sides of his character, one on top of the other, like rats out of a bag. Now as an Italian Englishman, now as a German Englishman, and now as a French Englishman, he drifted in and out of all the sitting-rooms in the house, with nothing to talk of but Miss Rachel's treatment of him, and with nobody to address himself to but me. I found him, for example, in the library, sitting under the map of modern Italy, and quite unaware of any other method of meeting his troubles, except the method of talking about them. 
"'I have several worthy aspirations, Better Edge, "'but what am I to do with them now? "'I am full of dormant good qualities, "'if Rachel would only have helped me to bring them out.' "'He was so eloquent in drawing the picture "'of his own neglected merits, "'and so pathetic in lamenting over it when it was done, "'that I felt quite at my wit's end how to console him, "'when it suddenly occurred to me "'that here was a case for the wholesome application "'of a bit of Robinson Crusoe. "'I hobbled out to my own room, "'and hobbled back with that immortal book. "'Nobody in the library. "'The map of modern Italy stared at me, "'and I stared at the map of modern Italy. "'So I tried the drawing room. "'There was his handkerchief on the floor, "'to prove that he had drifted in. "'And there was the empty room, "'to prove that he had drifted out again. "'I tried the dining room, "'and discovered Samuel with a biscuit and a glass of sherry, "'silently investigating the empty air.' A minute since, Mr. Franklin had rung furiously for a little light refreshment. On its production, in a violent hurry, by Samuel, Mr. Franklin had vanished before the bell downstairs had done ringing with the pull he had given it. I tried the morning room, and found him at last. There he was, at the window, drawing hieroglyphics with his finger in the damp on the glass. "'Your sherry is waiting for you, sir,' I said to him. I might as well have addressed myself to one of the four walls of the room. He was down in the bottomless deep of his own meditations, past all pulling up. "'How do you explain Rachel's conduct, Better Edge? was the only answer I received. Not being ready with the needful reply, I produced Robinson Crusoe, in which I am firmly persuaded some explanation might have been found if we had only searched long enough for it. Mr. Franklin shut up Robinson Crusoe and floundered into his German-English gibberish on the spot. "'Why not look into it?' he said, as if I'd personally objected to looking into it. "'Why the devil lose your patience, Better Edge, when patience is all that's wanted to arrive at the truth? Don't interrupt me. Rachel's conduct is perfectly intelligible, if you will only do her the common justice to take the objective view first, and the subjective view next.' "'and the objective-subjective view to wind up with. "'What do we know? "'We know that the loss of the moonstone on Thursday morning last "'threw her into a state of nervous excitement "'from which she has not recovered yet. "'Do you mean to deny the objective view so far? "'Very well, then. Don't interrupt me. "'Now, being in a state of nervous excitement, "'how are we to expect that she should behave "'as she might otherwise have behaved to any of the people about her?' "'Arguing in this way, from within outwards, what do we reach? "'We reach the subjective view. "'I defy you to controvert the subjective view. "'Very well, then. What follows? "'Good heavens! The objective-subjective explanation follows, of course. "'Rachel, properly speaking, is not Rachel, but somebody else. "'Do I mind being cruelly treated by somebody else?' "'You're unreasonable enough, Better Edge, "'but you can hardly accuse me of that. "'Then how does it end? "'It ends, in spite of your confounded English narrowness and prejudice, "'in my being perfectly happy and comfortable. "'Where's the sherry?' "'My head was by this time in such a condition "'that I was not quite sure whether it was my own head or Mr. Franklin's. "'In this deplorable state I contrived to do "'what I take to have been three objective things. I got Mr. Franklin his sherry, 
I retired to my own room, and I solaced myself with the most composing pipe of tobacco I ever remember to have smoked in my life. Don't suppose, however, that I was quit of Mr. Franklin on such easy terms as these. Drifting again, out of the morning room into the hall, he found his way to the offices next, smelt my pipe, and was instantly reminded that he had been simple enough to give up smoking for Miss Rachel's sake. In the twinkling of an eye, he burst in on me with his cigar case, and came out strong on the one everlasting subject in his neat, witty, unbelieving French way. "'Give me a light better edge. Is it conceivable that a man can have smoked as long as I have without discovering that there's a complete system for the treatment of women at the bottom of his cigar case? Follow me carefully, and I will prove it in two words. You choose a cigar, you try it, and it disappoints you. What do you do upon that?' "'You throw it away. Try another. "'Now observe the application. "'You choose a woman. You try her. "'She breaks your heart. Fool. "'Take a lesson from your cigar case. "'Throw her away and try another.' "'I shook my head at that. "'Wonderfully clever, I dare say, "'but my own experience was dead against it. "'In the time of the late Mrs. Betteridge,' I said, "'I felt pretty often inclined to try your philosophy, Mr. Franklin.' "'But the law insists on your smoking your cigar, sir, "'when you have once chosen it.' "'I pointed that observation with a wink. "'Mr. Franklin burst out laughing, "'and we were as merry as crickets "'until the next new side of his character "'turned up in due course. "'So things went on with my young master and me, "'and so, while the sergeant and the gardener "'were wrangling over the roses, "'we two spent the interval "'before the news came back from prison hall.' The pony chaise returned a good half-hour before I had ventured to expect it. My lady had decided to remain for the present at her sister's house. The groom bought two letters from his mistress, one addressed to Mr. Franklin and the other to me. Mr. Franklin's letter I sent to him in the library, into which refuge his driftings had now taken him for the second time. My own letter I read in my own room. A check, which dropped out when I opened it, informed me— before I had mastered the contents, that Sergeant Cuff's dismissal from the inquiry after the Moonstone was now a settled thing. I sent to the conservatory to say that I wished to speak to the sergeant directly. He appeared, with his mind full of the gardener and the dog rose, declaring that the equal of Mr. Begby for obstinacy never had existed yet, and never would exist again. I requested him to dismiss some wretched trifling as this from our conversation, "'and to give his best attention to a really serious matter. "'Upon that he exerted himself sufficiently "'to notice the letter in my hand. "'Ah,' he said in a weary way, "'you've heard from her ladyship. "'Have I anything to do with it, Mr. Betteredge?' "'You shall judge for yourself, Sergeant.' "'I thereupon read in the letter, "'with my best emphasis and discretion, "'in the following words. "'My good Gabriel,' I request that you will inform Sergeant Cuff that I have performed the promise I made to him, with this result, so far as Rosanna Spearman is concerned. Miss Verinder solemnly declares that she has never spoken a word in private to Rosanna, since that unhappy woman first entered my house. They never met, even accidentally, on the night when the diamond was lost, and no communication of any sort whatever took place between them. From the Thursday morning when the alarm was first raised in the house— "'to this present Saturday afternoon, when Miss Verinder left us. 
after telling my daughter suddenly, and in so many words, of Rosanna Spearman's suicide, this is what has come of it. Having reached that point, I looked up and asked Sergeant Cuff what he thought of the letter so far. "'I should only offend you if I expressed my opinion,' answered the sergeant. "'Go on, Mr. Betteridge,' he said, with the most exasperating resignation. "'Go on.' "'When I remembered that this man had had the audacity to complain of our gardener's obstinacy, "'my tongue itched to go on, in other words, than my mistress's. "'This time, however, my Christianity held firm. "'I proceeded steadily with her ladyship's letter.' Having appealed to Miss Verinder in the manner which the officer thought most desirable, I spoke to her next in the manner which I myself thought most likely to impress her. On two different occasions, before my daughter left my roof, I privately warned her that she was exposing herself to suspicion of the most unendurable and most degrading kind. I have now told her in the plainest terms that my apprehensions have been realized. Her answer to this, on her own solemn affirmation, is as plain as words can be. In the first place, she owes no money privately to any living creature. In the second place, the diamond is not now, and never has been, in her possession, since she put it into her cabinet on Wednesday night. The confidence which my daughter has placed in me goes no further than this. She maintains an obstinate silence when I ask her if she can explain the disappearance of the diamond. She refuses, with tears, "'when I appeal to her to speak out for my sake. "'The day will come when you will know "'why I am careless about being suspected "'and why I am silent even to you. "'I have done much to make my mother pity me, "'nothing to make my mother blush for me. "'Those are my daughter's own words. "'After what has passed between the officer and me, "'I think, stranger as he is, "'that he should be made acquainted "'with what Miss Verinder has said, as well as you.' Read my letter to him, and then place in his hands the check which I enclose. In resigning all further claim on his services, I have only to say that I am convinced of his honesty and his intelligence. But I am more firmly persuaded than ever that the circumstances in this case have fatally misled him. There the letter ended. Before presenting the check, I asked Sergeant Cuff if he had any remark to make. It's not part of my duty, Mr. Betteredge he answered, to make remarks on a case when I have done with it. I tossed the check across the table to him. Do you believe in that part of her ladyship's letter? I said, indignantly. The sergeant looked at the check and lifted up his dismal eyebrows in acknowledgment of her ladyship's liberality. This is such a generous estimate of the value of my time, he said, that I feel bound to make some return for it. "'I'll bear in mind the amount in this check, Mr. Betteredge, "'when the occasion comes round for remembering it.' "'What do you mean?' I asked. "'Her ladyship has smoothed matters over for the present very cleverly,' "'said the sergeant. "'But this family scandal is of the sort that burst up again "'when you least expect it. "'We shall have more detective business on our hands, sir, "'before the Moonstone is many months older.' "'If those words meant anything,' and if the manner in which he spoke them meant anything, it came to this. My mistress's letter had proved, to his mind, that Rachel was hardened enough to resist the strongest appeal that could be addressed to her, and that she had deceived her own mother. Good God! Under what circumstances? 
by a series of abominable lies. How other people in my place might have replied to the sergeant, I don't know. I answered what he said in these plain terms. Sergeant Cuff, I consider your last observation as an insult to my lady and her daughter. Mr. Betteredge, consider it as a warning to yourself, and you will be nearer the mark. Hot and angry as I was, the infernal confidence with which he gave me that answer closed my lips. I walked to the window to compose myself. The rain had given over, and who should I see in the courtyard but Mr. Begby, the gardener, waiting outside to continue the dog-rose controversy with Sergeant Cuff. "'My compliments to the sergeant,' said Mr. Begby, the moment he set eyes on me. "'If he's minded to walk to the station, I'm agreeable to go with him.' "'What?' cries the sergeant, behind me. "'Are you not convinced yet?' "'The devil a bit, I'm convinced,' answered Mr. Begby. "'Then I'll walk to the station,' says the sergeant. "'Then I'll meet you at the gate,' says Mr. Begby. "'I was angry enough, as you know. "'But how is any man's anger to hold out "'against such an interruption as this?' "'Sergeant Cup noticed the change in me "'and encouraged it by a word in season. "'Come, come,' he said. "'Why not treat my view of the case "'as her ladyship treats it? "'Why not say, "'The circumstances have fatally misled me?' To take anything as your ladyship took it was a privilege worth enjoying, even with the disadvantage of its having been offered to me by Sergeant Cuff. I cooled slowly down to my customary level. I regarded any other opinion of Miss Rachel than my lady's opinion or mine with a lofty contempt. The only thing I could not do was to keep off the subject of the moonstone. My own good sense ought to have warned me, I know, to let the matter rest. But... There, the virtues which distinguish the present generation were not invented in my time. Sergeant Cuff had hit me on the raw, and, though I did look down upon him with contempt, the tender place still tingled for all that. The end of it was that I perversely led him back to the subject of her ladyship's letter. I am quite satisfied myself, I said. But never mind that. Go on, as if I was still open to conviction. "'You think Miss Rachel is not to be believed on her word, "'and you say we shall hear of the Moonstone again. "'Back your opinion, Sergeant,' I concluded, in an airy way. "'Back your opinion.' "'Instead of taking offense, Sergeant Cuff seized my hand "'and shook it till my fingers ached again. "'I declare to heaven,' says this strange officer solemnly, "'I would take to domestic service tomorrow, Mr. Betteredge.' "'if I had a chance of being employed along with you. "'To say you are as transparent as a child, sir, "'is to pay the children a compliment "'which nine out of ten of them don't deserve. "'There, we won't begin to dispute again. "'You shall have it out of me on easier terms than that. "'I won't say a word more about her ladyship "'or about Miss Verinder. "'I'll only term profit. "'For once in a way, and for your sake.' "'I've warned you already that you haven't done with the moonstone yet. "'Very well. "'Now I'll tell you, at parting, "'of three things which will happen in the future, "'and which, I believe, will force themselves on your attention, "'whether you like it or not.' "'Go on,' I said, quite unabashed, "'and just as airy as ever. First, 
said the sergeant. "'You will hear something from the Yolans "'when the postman delivers Rosanna's letter at Cobb's Hole on Monday next.' "'If he had thrown a bucket of cold water over me, "'I doubt if I could have felt it much more unpleasantly "'than I felt those words. "'Miss Rachel's assertion of her innocence "'had left Rosanna's conduct, "'the making of the new nightgown, "'the hiding of the smeared nightgown, "'and all the rest of it, "'entirely without explanation. "'And this had never occurred to me, "'till Sergeant Cuff forced it on my mind "'all in a moment. "'In the second place,' "'proceeded the sergeant, "'you will hear of the three Indians again.' "'You will hear of them in the neighborhood, "'if Miss Rachel remains in the neighborhood. "'You will hear of them in London, "'if Miss Rachel goes to London.' "'Having lost all interest in the three jugglers, "'and having thoroughly convinced myself "'of my young lady's innocence, "'I took this second prophecy easily enough. "'So much for two of the three things "'that are going to happen,' I said. "'Now for the third. Third and last,' said Sergeant Cuff. "'You will, sooner or later.' "'Here's something of that money-lender in London, "'whom I have twice taken the liberty of mentioning already. "'Give me your pocket-book, "'and I'll make a note for you of his name and address, "'so that there may be no mistake about it "'if the thing really happens.' "'He wrote accordingly on a blank leaf, "'Mr. Septimus Luker, Middlesex Place, Lambeth, London. "'There,' he said, pointing to the address, "'are the last words on the subject of the moonstone, "'which I shall trouble you with for the present.' "'Time will show whether I'm right or wrong. "'In the meanwhile, sir, "'I carry away with me a sincere personal liking for you, "'which I think does honor to both of us. "'If we don't meet again before my professional retirement takes place, "'I hope you will come and see me in a little house near London, "'which I have got my eye on. "'There will be grass walks, Mr. Betteredge, "'I promise you, in my garden. "'And as for the white moss rose... "'The devil a bit! "'You'll get the white moss rose to grow!' "'unless you butt him on the dog rose first, cried a voice at the window. "'We both turned around. "'There was the everlasting Mr. Begby, "'too eager for the controversy to wait any longer at the gate. "'The sergeant wrung my hand and darted out into the courtyard, "'hotter still on his side. "'Ask him about the moss rose when he comes back, "'and see if I have left him a leg to stand on,' cried the great cuff, "'hailing me through the window in his turn.' "'Gentlemen, both,' I answered, moderating them again as I had moderated them once already. "'In the matter of the moss rose, there's a great deal to be said on both sides. "'I might as well, as the Irish say, have whistled jigs to a milestone. "'Away they went together, fighting the battle of the roses without asking or giving quarter on either side. "'The last I saw of them, Mr. Begbie was shaking his obstinate head.' "'and Sergeant Cuff had got him by the arm like a prisoner in charge. "'Ah, well, well. "'I own I couldn't help liking the sergeant, "'although I hated him all the time. "'Explain that state of mind, if you can. "'You'll soon be rid now of me and my contradictions. "'When I have reported Mr. Franklin's departure, "'the history of the Saturday's events will be finished at last, "'and when I have next described certain strange things "'that happened in the course of the new week,' I shall have done my part of the story, and shall hand over the pen to the person who is appointed to follow my lead. If you are as tired of reading this narrative as I am of writing it, Lord, how we shall enjoy ourselves on both sides just a few pages further on. We'll return with Better Edge's last chapter, chapter 23, 
right after these sponsor messages. And now, Chapter 23 of The Moonstone. I had kept the pony chaise ready in case Mr. Franklin persisted in leaving us by train that night. The appearance of the luggage, followed downstairs by Mr. Franklin himself, informed me plainly enough that he had held firm to a resolution for once in his life. "'So you've really made up your mind, sir,' I said, as we met in the hall. "'Why not wait a day or two longer and give Miss Rachel another chance?' The foreign varnish appeared to have all worn off Mr. Franklin, now that the time had come for saying good-bye. Instead of replying to me in words, he put the letter which her ladyship had addressed to him into my hand. The greater part of it said over again what had been said already in the other communication received by me.' "'but there was a bit about Miss Rachel added at the end, "'which will account for the steadiness of Mr. Franklin's determination, "'if it accounts for nothing else. "'You will wonder, I dare say,' her ladyship wrote, "'at my allowing my own daughter to keep me perfectly in the dark. "'A diamond worth twenty thousand pounds has been lost, "'and I am left to infer that the mystery of its disappearance "'is no mystery to Rachel, "'and that some incomprehensible obligation of silence "'has been laid on her,' "'by some person or persons utterly unknown to me, "'with some object in view at which I cannot even guess. "'Is it conceivable that I should allow myself "'to be trifled with in this way? "'It is quite conceivable, in Rachel's present state. "'She is in a condition of nervous agitation pitiable to see. "'I dare not approach the subject of the moonstone again "'until time has done something to quiet her. "'To help this end, I have not hesitated to dismiss the police officer. The mystery which baffles us baffles him too. This is not a matter in which any stranger can help us. He adds to what I have to suffer, and he maddens Rachel if she only hears his name. My plans for the future are as well settled as they can be. My present idea is to take Rachel to London, partly to relieve her mind by a complete change, partly to try what may be done by consulting the best medical advice. "'Can I ask you to meet us in town? "'My dear Franklin, you, in your way, "'must imitate my patience "'and wait, as I do, for a fitter time. "'The valuable assistance "'which you rendered to the inquiry "'after the last jewel "'is still an unpardoned offense "'in the present dreadful state of Rachel's mind. "'Moving blindfold in this matter, "'you have added to the burden of anxiety "'which she has had to bear "'by innocently threatening her secret with discovery.' "'through your exertions. "'It is impossible for me to excuse the perversity "'that holds you responsible for consequences "'which neither you nor I could imagine or foresee. "'She is not to be reasoned with. "'She can only be pitied. "'I am grieved to have to say it, "'but for the present you and Rachel are better apart. "'The only advice I can offer you is give her time.' "'I handed the letter back, "'Sincerely sorry for Mr. Franklin, "'for I knew how fond he was of my young lady, "'and I saw that her mother's account of her "'had cut him to the heart. "'You know the proverb, sir,' "'was all I said to him. "'When things are at the worst, "'they're sure to mend. "'Things can't be much worse, Mr. Franklin, "'than they are now.' "'Mr. Franklin folded up his aunt's letter "'without appearing to be much comforted "'by the remark which I had ventured "'on addressing to him.' "'When I came here from London with that horrible diamond,' he said, "'I don't believe there was a happier household in England than this. "'Look at the household now. "'Scattered, disunited, 
the very air of the place poisoned with mystery and suspicion. Do you remember that morning at the Shivering Sand, when we talked about my Uncle Herncastle and his birthday gift? The Moonstone has served the Colonel's vengeance, Betteredge, by means of which the Colonel himself never dreamt of. With that he shook me by the hand and went out to the pony chaise. I followed him down the steps. It was very miserable to see him leaving the old place, where he had spent the happiest years of his life, in this way. Penelope, sadly upset by all that had happened in the house, came round crying to bid him goodbye. Mr. Franklin kissed her. I waved my hand as much to say, "'You're hardly welcome, sir.' Some of the other female servants appeared, peering after him round the corner. He was one of those men whom the women all like. At the last moment, I stopped the pony chaise and begged as a favor that he would let us hear from him by letter. He didn't seem to heed what I said. He was looking round from one thing to another, taking a sort of farewell of the old house and grounds. "'Tell us where you're going to, sir,' I said, holding on by the chaise, and trying to get at his future plans in that way. Mr. Franklin pulled his hat down suddenly over his eyes. "'Going?' says he, echoing the word after me. "'I'm going to the devil!' The pony started at the word, as if it had felt a Christian horror of it. "'God bless you, sir. Go where you may,' was all I had time to say before he was out of sight and hearing. "'A sweet and pleasant gentleman. With all his faults and follies, a sweet and pleasant gentleman. He left a sad gap behind him when he left my lady's house. It was dull and dreary enough when the long summer evening closed in on that Saturday night. I kept my spirits from sinking by sticking fast to my pipe and my Robinson Crusoe. The women, excepting Penelope, beguiled the time by talking of Rosanna's suicide. They were all obstinately of opinion that the poor girl had stolen the moonstone, and that she had destroyed herself in terror of being found out. My daughter, of course, privately held fast to what she had said all along. Her notion of the motive which was really at the bottom of the suicide failed, oddly enough, just where my young lady's assertion of her innocence failed also. It left Rosanna's secret journey to prison hall, and Rosanna's proceedings in the matter of the nightgown entirely unaccounted for. There was no use in pointing this out to Penelope. The objection made about as much impression on her as a shower of rain on a waterproof coat. The truth is, my daughter inherits my superiority to reason, and, in respect to that accomplishment, has got a long way ahead of her father. On the next day, Sunday, the close carriage, which had been kept at Mr. Abelwhite's, came back to us empty. The coachman brought a message for me, and written instructions for my lady's own maid, and for Penelope. The maid informed me that my mistress had determined to take Miss Rachel to her house in London on the Monday. The written instructions informed the two maids of the clothing that was wanted, and directed them to meet their mistresses in town at a given hour. Most of the other servants were to follow. My lady had found Miss Rachel so unwilling to return to the house, after what had happened in it, that she had decided on going to London direct from prison hall. I was to remain in the country until further orders to look after things indoors and out. The servants left with me were to be put on board wages. Being reminded by all this of what Mr. Franklin had said about our being a scattered and disunited household, my mind was led naturally to Mr. Franklin himself. 
The more I thought of him, the more uneasy I felt about his future proceedings. It ended in my writing, by the Sunday's post, to his father's valet, Mr. Jeffco, whom I had known in former years, to beg he would let me know what Mr. Franklin had settled to do on arriving in London. The Sunday evening was, if possible, duller even than the Saturday evening. We ended the day of rest as hundreds of thousands of people end it regularly, once a week, in these islands. That is to say, we all anticipated bedtime and fell asleep in our chairs. How the Monday affected the rest of the household, I don't know. The Monday gave me a good shake-up. The first of Sergeant Cuff's prophecies of what was to happen, namely, that I should hear from the Yolans, came true on that day. I had seen Penelope and my lady's maid off on the railway with the luggage for London, and was pottering about the grounds when I heard my name called. Turning round, I found myself face to face with the fisherman's daughter, Limping Lucy. Baiting her lame foot and her leanness, this last a horrid drawback to a woman, in my opinion, the girl had some pleasing qualities in the eye of a man. A dark, keen, clever face, and a nice clear voice, and a beautiful brown head of hair counted among her merits. A crutch appeared in the list of her misfortunes, and a temper reckoned high in the sum total of her defects. "'Well, my dear,' I said, "'what do you want with me?' "'Where's the man you call Franklin Blake?' "'says the girl, fixing me with a fierce look, "'as she rested herself on a crutch. "'That's not a respectful way to speak of any gentleman,' I answered. "'If you wish to inquire for my lady's nephew, "'you will please to mention him as Mr. Franklin Blake.' "'She limped a step nearer to me, "'and looked as if she could have eaten me alive. "'Mr. Franklin Blake!' she repeated after me. "'Murderer Franklin Blake would be a fitter name for him.' My practice with the late Mrs. Betteredge came in handy here. Whenever a woman tries to put you out of temper, turn the tables and put her out of temper instead. They are generally prepared for every effort you can make in your own defense, but that. One word does it as well as a hundred, and one word did it with Limping Lucy. I looked her pleasantly in the face, and I said, Pooh! The girl's temper flamed out directly. She poised herself on her sound foot, "'and she took her crutch "'and beat it furiously three times on the ground. "'He's a murderer! "'He's a murderer! "'He's a murderer! "'He has been the death of Rosanna Spearman. "'She screamed that answer out at the top of her voice. "'One or two of the people at work in the grounds nearest looked up. "'So it was Limping Lucy, "'knew what to expect from that quarter, "'and looked away again. "'He has been the death of Rosanna Spearman,' I repeated. "'What makes you say that, Lucy?' "'What do you care? What does any man care? "'Oh, if she'd only thought of the men as I think, "'she might have been living now.' "'She always thought kindly of me, poor soul,' I said, "'and to the best of my ability, "'I always tried to act kindly by her.' "'I spoke those words in as comforting a manner as I could. "'The truth is, I hadn't the heart to irritate the girl "'by another of my smart replies. "'I'd only noticed her temper at first. I noticed her wretchedness now, and wretchedness is not uncommonly insolent, you will find, in humble life. My answer melted Limping Lucy. She bent her head down and laid it on top of her crutch. I loved her. I loved her, the girl said softly. She had lived a miserable life, Mr. Betteredge. 
"'Vile people had ill-treated her and led her wrong, "'and it hadn't spoiled her sweet temper. "'She was an angel. "'She might have been happy with me. "'I had a plan for our going to London together like sisters "'and living by our needles. "'That man came here and spoilt it all. "'He bewitched her. "'Don't tell me he didn't mean it, and he didn't know it. "'He ought to have known it. "'He ought to have taken pity on her. "'I can't live without him.' "'And, oh, Lucy, he never even looks at me. "'That's what she said. "'Cruel, cruel,' I said. "'No man is worth fretting for in that way.' "'And she said, "'There are men worth dying for, Lucy, "'and he is one of them. "'I had saved up a little money. "'I had settled things with father and mother. "'I meant to take her away from the mortification "'she was suffering here. "'We should have had a little lodging in London.' "'and lived together like sisters. "'She had a good education, sir, as you know, "'and she wrote a good hand. "'She was quick at her needle. "'I have a good education, and I write a good hand. "'I'm not as quick at my needle as she was, "'but I could have done. "'We might have got our living nicely. "'And, oh, what happens this morning? "'What happens this morning? "'Her letter comes and tells me what she's done "'with the burden of her life.' "'Her letter comes and bids me good-bye forever.' "'Where is he?' cries the girl, "'lifting her head from the crutch "'and flaming out again through her tears. "'Where is this gentleman that I mustn't speak of "'except with respect? "'Ha, Mr. Betteredge! "'The day is not far off "'when the poor will rise against the rich. "'I pray heaven they begin with him. "'I pray heaven they may begin with him.' "'Here was another of your average good Christians.' and here was the usual breakdown, consequent on that same average Christianity being pushed too far. The parson himself, though I own this is saying a great deal, could hardly have lectured the girl in the state she was in now. All I ventured to do was to keep her to the point, in the hope of something turning up which might be worth hearing. "'What do you want with Mr. Franklin Blake?' I asked. "'I want to see him. For anything particular? I have a letter to give him.' "'From Rosanna Spearman?' "'Yes.' "'Sent to you in your own letter?' "'Yes.' "'Was the darkness going to lift? "'Were all the discoveries that I was dying to make "'coming and offering themselves to me of their own accord? "'I was obliged to wait a moment. "'Sergeant Cuff had left his infection behind him. "'Certain signs and tokens, personal to myself, "'warned me that the detective fever was beginning to set in again.' "'You can't see Mr. Franklin,' I said. "'I must and I will see him. "'He went to London last night.' Limping Lucy looked me hard in the face "'and saw that I was speaking the truth. "'Without a word more, "'she turned about again instantly towards Cobb's hole. "'Stop,' I said. "'I expect news of Mr. Franklin Blake tomorrow. "'Give me your letter, "'and I'll send it on to him by the post.' Limping Lucy steadied herself on a crutch and looked back at me over her shoulder. "'I am to give it from my hands into his hands,' she said, "'and I am to give it to him in no other way.' "'Shall I write and tell him what you have said?' "'Tell him I hate him, and you will tell him the truth.' "'Yes, yes, but about the letter. "'If he wants the letter, he must come back here and get it from me.' With those words, she limped off on the way to Cobb's hole. 
"'The detective fever burnt up all my dignity on the spot. "'I followed her and tried to make her talk. "'All in vain. "'It was my misfortune to be a man, "'and Limping Lucy and Joy disappointed me. "'Later in the day I tried my luck with her mother. "'Good Mrs. Yolan could only cry "'and recommend a drop of comfort out of the Dutch bottle. "'I found the fisherman on the beach. "'He said it was a bad job and went on mending his net. Neither father nor mother knew more than I knew. The one way left to try was the chance, which might come with the morning, of writing to Mr. Franklin Blake. I leave you to imagine how I watched for the postman on Tuesday morning. He brought me two letters, one from Penelope, which I had hardly patience enough to read, announced that my lady and Miss Rachel were safely established in London. The other from Mr. Jeffco, "'informed me that his master's son had left England already. "'On reaching the metropolis, Mr. Franklin had, it appeared, "'gone straight to his father's residence. "'He arrived at an awkward time. "'Mr. Blake, the elder, was up to his eyes "'in the business of the House of Commons "'and was amusing himself at home that night "'with the favorite parliamentary plaything "'which they call a private bill. "'Mr. Jeffco himself showed Mr. Franklin "'into his father's study. "'My dear Franklin,' "'Why do you surprise me in this way? "'Anything wrong?' "'Yes, something wrong with Rachel. "'I'm dreadfully distressed about it.' "'Grieved to hear it. "'But I can't listen to you now.' "'When can you listen?' "'My dear boy, I won't deceive you. "'I can listen at the end of the session, "'and not a moment before. "'Good night.' "'Thank you, sir. "'Good night.' Such was the conversation, inside the study, as reported to be by Mr. Jeffco. The conversation outside the study was shorter still. Jeffco, see what time the title train starts tomorrow morning. At 6.40, Mr. Franklin. Have me called at 5. Going abroad, sir? Going, Jeffco, wherever the railway chooses to take me. Shall I tell your father, sir? Yes, tell him at the end of the session. The next morning Mr. Franklin had started for foreign parts. To what particular place he was bound, nobody, himself included, could presume to guess. We might hear of him next in Europe, Asia, Africa, or America. The chances were as equally divided as possible, in Mr. Jeffco's opinion, among the four quarters of the globe. This news, by closing up all prospects of my bringing Limping Lucy and Mr. Franklin together, "'at once stopped any further progress of mine on the way to discovery. "'Penelope's belief that her fellow-servant had destroyed herself "'through unrequited love for Mr. Franklin Blake was confirmed. "'And that was all. "'Whether the letter which Rosanna had left to be given him "'after her death did, or did not, "'contain the confession which Mr. Franklin had suspected her "'of trying to make to him in her lifetime, "'it was impossible to say. "'It might be only a farewell word,' "'telling nothing but the secret of her unhappy fancy "'for a person beyond her reach. "'Or it might own the whole truth "'about the strange proceedings "'in which Sergeant Cuff had detected her, "'from the time when the moonstone was lost "'to the time when she rushed to her own destruction "'at the shivering sand. "'A sealed letter it had been placed in Limping Lucy's hand, "'and a sealed letter it remained to me "'and to everyone about the girl, "'her own parents included.' We all suspected her of having been in the dead woman's confidence. We all tried to make her speak. We all failed. Now one, and now another, of the servants, still holding to the belief that Rosanna had stolen the diamond and had hidden it, 
peered and poked about the rocks to which she had been traced, and peered and poked in vain. The tide ebbed, and the tide flowed. The summer went on, and the autumn came. And the quicksand, which hid her body, hid her secret too. The news of Mr. Franklin's departure from England on the Sunday morning, and the news of my lady's arrival in London with Miss Rachel on the Monday afternoon, had reached me, as you are aware, by the Tuesday post. The Wednesday came, and brought nothing. The Thursday produced a second budget of news from Penelope. My girl's letter informed me that some great London doctor had been consulted about her young lady, and had earned a guinea by remarking that she had better be amused. Flower shows, operas, balls, there was a whole round of gaieties in prospect, and Miss Rachel, to her mother's astonishment, eagerly took to it all. Mr. Godfrey had called, evidently as sweet as ever on his cousin, in spite of the reception he had met with when he tried his luck on the occasion of the birthday. To Penelope's great regret, he had been most graciously received, and had added Miss Rachel's name to one of his lady's charities on the spot. My mistress was reported to be out of spirits, and to have held two long interviews with her lawyer. Certain speculations followed, referring to a poor relation of the family, one Miss Clack, whom I mentioned in my account of the birthday dinner, as sitting next to Mr. Godfrey, and having a pretty taste in champagne. Penelope was astonished to find that Miss Clack had not called yet. She would surely not be long before she fastened herself on my lady as usual, and so forth, and so forth, in the way women have of girding at each other, on and off paper. This would not have been worth mentioning, I admit, but for one reason. I hear you were likely to be turned over to Miss Clack for parting with me. In that case, just do me the favor of not believing a word she says if she speaks of your humble servant. On Friday, nothing happened except that one of the dogs showed signs of a breaking out behind the ears. I gave him a dose of syrup of buckthorn and put him on a diet of pot liquor and vegetables till further orders. Excuse my mentioning this. It has slipped in somehow. Pass it over, please. I am fast coming to the end of my offenses against your cultivated modern taste. Besides, the dog was a good creature and deserved a good physicking. He did indeed. Saturday, the last day of the week, is also the last day of my narrative. The morning's post brought me a surprise in the shape of a London newspaper. The handwriting on the direction puzzled me. I compared it with the moneylender's name and address as recorded in my pocketbook, and identified it at once as the writing of Sergeant Cuff. Looking through the paper eagerly enough, after this discovery, I found an ink mark drawn round one of the police reports. Here it is, at your service. Read it as I read it, and you will set the right value on the sergeant's polite attention in sending me the news of the day. Lambeth, shortly before the closing of the court, Mr. Septimus Luker, the well-known dealer in ancient gems, carvings, etc., etc., applied to the sitting magistrate for advice. The applicant stated that he had been annoyed at intervals throughout the day by the proceedings of some of those strolling Indians who infest the streets. The persons complained of were three in number. After having been sent away by the police, they had returned again and again and had attempted to enter the house on pretense of asking for charity. Warned off in the front, they had been discovered again at the back of the premises. Besides the annoyance complained of, Mr. Luker expressed himself as being under some apprehension that robbery might be contemplated. His collection contained many unique gems, 
both classical and oriental, of the highest value. He had only the day before been compelled to dismiss a skilled workman in ivory carving from his employment, a native of India, as we understood, on suspicion of attempted theft, and he felt by no means sure that this man and the street jugglers of whom he complained might not be acting in concert. It might be their object to collect a crowd and create a disturbance in the street, and in the confusion thus caused, to obtain access to the house. In reply to the magistrate, Mr. Luker admitted that he had no evidence to produce of any attempt at robbery being in contemplation. He could speak positively to the annoyance and interruption caused by the Indians, but not to anything else. The magistrate remarked that, if the annoyance were repeated, the applicant could summon the Indians to that court, where they might easily be dealt with under the act. As to the valuables in Mr. Luker's possession, Mr. Luker himself must take the best measures for their safe custody. He would do well, perhaps, to communicate with the police, and to adopt such additional precautions as their experience might suggest. The applicant thanked his worship and withdrew. One of the wisest ancients is reported, I forget on what occasion, as having recommended his fellow creatures to look to the end. Looking to the end of these pages of mine, and wondering for some days past how I should manage to write it, I find my plain statement of facts coming to a conclusion, most appropriately, of its own self. We have gone on, in this manner of the moonstone, from one marvel to another, and here we end with the greatest marvel of all, namely, the accomplishment of Sergeant Cuff's three predictions in less than a week from the time when he had made them. After hearing from the Yolans on the Monday, I had now heard of the Indians, and heard of the moneylender in the news from London, Miss Rachel herself, remember, being also in London at the time. You see, I put things at their worst, even when they tell dead against my own view. If you desert me, and side with the sergeant, on the evidence before you, if the only rational explanation you can see is that Miss Rachel and Mr. Luker must have got together, and that the moonstone must now be in pledge in that moneylender's house, I own, I can't blame you for arriving at that conclusion. In the dark, I brought you thus far. In the dark, I'm compelled to leave you, with my best respects. Why compelled? It may be asked. Why not take the persons who have gone along with me so far, up into those regions of superior enlightenment in which I sit myself? In answer to this, I can only state that I'm acting under orders, and that those orders have been given to me, as I understand, in the interests of truth. I am forbidden to tell more in this narrative than I knew myself at the time. Or, to put it plainer, I am to keep strictly within the limits of my own experience, and I am not to inform you of what other persons told me, for the very sufficient reason that you are to have the information from those other persons themselves, at first hand. In this manner of the moonstone, the plan is, not to present reports, but to produce witnesses. I picture to myself a member of the family "'reading these pages fifty years hence. "'Lord, what a compliment he will feel it "'to be asked to take nothing on hearsay "'and to be treated in all respects "'like a judge on the bench. "'At this place, then, we part, "'for the present, at least, "'after long journeying together "'with a companionable feeling, I hope, on both sides. "'This devil's dance of the Indian diamond "'has threaded its way to London, "'and to London you must go after it, "'leaving me at the country house.' Please to excuse the faults of this composition, 
"'my talking so much of myself, "'and being too familiar, I am afraid, with you. "'I mean no harm, "'and I drink most respectfully, "'having just done dinner, "'to your health and prosperity, "'in a tankard of her ladyship's ale. "'May you find in these leaves of my writing "'what Robinson Crusoe found in his experience "'on the desert island, "'namely, something to comfort yourselves from, "'and to set the description of good and evil "'on the credit side of the account. "'Farewell.' The end of the first period. And that's where Mr. Betteredge leaves us as we move toward the second period. Next week Sunday at noon Eastern Time. If you're enjoying our mystery, everyone, please do take a moment and send us a review for 1001 Stories for the Road. Thank you. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, everyone. And we'll be back soon with more of the Moonstone.